Ots Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina Monday, the 4th of July. Corner Trubridge Ho. Coming up, we're going to get Anna Burns Francis on the line from the United States where abortion rights activists are fighting the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision on the streets, in the courts, and at the ballot box. Are we seeing the second, the start of a second COVID-19 wave? Winter cases are steadily rising and some of the modelling is causing concern. Dr. Michael Baker joins us. We'll break down the weekend's epic. Warriors and All Blacks games and the Sharp Blacks. The Sharp Blacks are heading to the US for the U- for the World Butchers Challenge. There'll be 15 countries that we're going to compete against. It's going to be broadcasted live throughout the world. It's the Olympics of um, butchery. Atamaria, welcome uh, to First Up uh, on your Monday morning. We're going to begin in the United States uh, where the fallout from both the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v Wade uh, and, of course, the testimony of uh, Cassidy Hutchinson at the January 6th hearings continue to be felt. Uh, Joining me from New York is our correspondent, Anna Burns-Francis. Morena, Anna. Morning, Nick. How are you? Yeah, really well. Uh, let's start with the Jan 6 uh, hearings. Basically, the committee saying that they could be making referrals to the to the Justice Department, uh, including against Mr Trump. Yeah, and we've always known that that is a possibility, that the committee might do that. So there's sort of two aspects to what they are intending to do. One is that they release a report with their overall findings that they have. That's due out right before the midterm elections. So they're aiming to publish that sometime between September and the elections at the start of November. But the other thing that is certainly being discussed more and more as these hearings go on, as we get further through, is the possibility that they too will make a referral to the Department of Justice for a prosecution. Now, that doesn't actually um, matter too much maybe to the Department of Justice because it's also doing its own investigation. So there's a sort of a whole bunch of threads that all combine here and not everyone that the DOJ is talking to is appearing at the committee and vice versa. And there has been a little bit of conflict actually between the two parties as to who's going to let which witness reveal which bit of information to who. Um, But somewhere along the line, we could certainly see some charges being laid. And in the meantime, I mean, um, Donald Trump's, you know, running the the sorts of campaigns he usually does, uh, isn't he? Uh, Having a crack at Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Just reading here, uh, calling it it testimony, all lies, calling it bull. uh, He sounds a, a little bit worried, maybe. For someone who claimed that, you know, this was a committee he was absolutely not interested in watching a single minute of, he certainly seems Mm. to be pretty well informed and one might suspect he's watching it intimately every minute of the proceedings. And yes, for a man who claims that he didn't get angry at the Secret Service and go on a rant, he's certainly gone on a rant about not going on a rant. Uh, But yes, maybe he is a bit worried. Certainly, I think, about how this might sway. He's not stupid. He might say a lot of things that we think, my God, are you serious? But he knows how to read an audience and capture an audience very well. And he will be thinking about the fact that he can't just rely on his hardcore faithful flock. He's already got them in his pocket. They're not the ones he needs to worry about. If he wants to have another run at president, he needs to be able to capture more of that middle market. And that's where the problem might lie, is that a lot of this testimony is quite damaging for the broad ripple that it's getting throughout wider media about what he is said to have done that day. Yeah, and and I, I guess talking of this uh, this potential run for the presidency, there's there's talk that he's considering perhaps announcing a run early. Look, is he or is that something that he says he's doing so that yeah. anyone's ready for it when it does come? And yeah. there was talk that it was the first week of July, and I thought, please, dear God, no, there's not enough of a break since the last election before we get to that. So I don't think it will be yet because. 
two things about Donald Trump. He'll want to know who his competition is. He'll be waiting to see how Ron DeSantis and all those other guys go. And he will be looking at how those lower level state elections and state uh, runoffs are going at the moment where he has endorsed certain candidates. And to be honest, it's 50-50 whether he's getting an endorsed candidate in or not. And that's what he'll really need to be able to swing some of these state legislatures, to be able to turn the opinion of electors. If there's any issue with voting that he sees it next time, he'll want to make sure he's got all those lower levels tiered up and, and loyal to him and willing to bend or even break the rules to make sure he can become president again. He won't want to lose twice. Yeah, Roe v. Wade, of course, is, is the other big story uh, across the across where you are. Um, talk to us about President Biden because his sort of language on this has shifted in the last couple of days. Yeah, well, he's got nothing to lose, does he? He hasn't got a court that is in any way reasonable or moderate or even arguably representative of the American public. He can afford to be quite outspoken. There's certainly no. Uh, thought that any of those justices are going to move on anytime soon. And he is diametrically opposed to the sorts of uh, court cases and considerations that they seem to be taking. So, yeah, he's called them destabilising for the country. Really strong rhetoric coming out of his comments at NATO uh, in the last couple of days. The problem is, what can he do about it? So he might as well have a blast at them because he can't change any of the rules. He could have some movement within the Women's Health Act but again, he's, he seems to have decided not to make executive orders like his predecessors have often done. You know, we saw Donald Trump make a lot of executive orders, but they tend to expire when the presidency changes sides again. So he hasn't done that and he hasn't got the Senate and he's probably about to lose Congress in the midterms as well. That looks like it will flip back to Republicans. Yeah, yeah, tough times indeed. Uh, uh, it's 4th of July here already. It's still the third where you are. But um, come tomorrow morning, what's planned over your way? I think the planning starts, you know, a year in advance. If you're an American, you look from last year's barbecue menu to next year's one into the other. It certainly is one of the biggest holiday weekends. Uh, and actually, according to the TSA, one of the biggest traveling weekends they've had since before the pandemic. We are, the COVID is over if you're in America. There are up to two and a half million people screened on Friday alone. Uh, the problem is they're getting a whole lot of flight cancellations, of course, because schedules can't be completed and there's still no, not enough, I should say, pilots. But the other big thing hitting the wallet this weekend is the price of your barbecue goods. Pork brisket is out. Pre-cooked saucies look like they might be in. The beer is still not Ooh. too expensive. But if you want a really good holiday weekend, I'm going to suggest what Americans love to do, a big public display of fireworks. That looks like it's the best way to go for tomorrow. What will you be eating? I mean, does really no more brisket and now processed saucies? Well, I probably am, I'm in Manhattan, so it's not really the barbecue no. capital of America, yeah. to be honest. You know, I'm a margarita fan if you're at this end of town. Oh, and yeah. um, and there's a massive Macy's fireworks display. So I'll be finding a rooftop, drinking a mug and a fruit bowl, and I'll be good to go. Sounds horrible. Uh, enjoy, it. <laughs> enjoy it, Anna. Uh, thanks very much. Anna Burns-Francis beaming in there from the U.S. It is coming up uh, 11 minutes past five uh, and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge, in for Nathan Rarity. Uh, we're keen for your feedback. Let's keep it July 4th themed. Uh, it's tomorrow in the US. It's today here if you're American in New Zealand. But what's the most American thing ever? Uh, a, a particular sport, a particular food? Maybe it's a, have you been to any uh, particularly American events? Maybe, a, maybe, maybe you've been to the Super Bowl.
Jeez, that would be good, wouldn't it? Uh, you can text us, 2101. Uh, tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at firstuprnz. Uh, well, staying in the United States, uh, where women requiring an abortion are being forced to travel across state lines since the Supreme Court overturned that Roe v. Wade uh, president uh, last week. One Nebraska woman was forced to travel to Colorado to get the treatment she needed despite the fact she might have died if she continued the pregnancy and the baby wouldn't have survived. CNN's Lucy Kavanov has her story. Stephanie Dvorak and her husband Dave always wanted a big family, a sibling for their daughter Harper. (laughs) So when they found out Stephanie was pregnant with a boy last summer, they were overjoyed. This is a very wanted child. We planned for this baby. But 12 weeks into the pregnancy, an ultrasound revealed an emphalocele, a birth defect where the fetus's internal organs were developing outside the body. This photo shows a defeated Stephanie the day she received the tragic news. What would that have meant for quality of life for this baby? There, There would have been none. He would not have been able to survive or come home. Stephanie was also told her own life could be in jeopardy. At 19 weeks, she and her husband made the painful choice to terminate the pregnancy. An abortion was what I needed to save my life and give my son the dignity that he deserved. I couldn't carry this baby to term and have my husband have to bury both of us. It, it just wasn't an option. Abortion was. Their home state of Nebraska allowed abortions up to 22 weeks, but they couldn't find a clinic that could schedule the procedure in time. After a desperate search across nearby states, the family settled on the Boulder Abortion Clinic in Colorado. This is Dr. Hearn. Dr. Warren Hearn has been providing well, abortions well, for nearly well, half a century. He's 84 years well, old and remembers the days before Roe versus Wade. Thousands of women died every year from unsafe, illegal abortions. I think one of the consequences of this decision is that women will die as they did before Roe versus Wade. In Colorado, abortion is legal at all stages of pregnancy. Even before the Supreme Court's ruling last week, Colorado's family planning clinics were struggling. This is sort of an abortion intensive care unit. Uh, We get patients from all over the country who can't be seen in other clinics. How do you see that impacting the surge of patients coming to Colorado? It's more than we can absorb. Uh, And so it takes a long time to expand the services. You have to find the people who will do this and risk their lives to do it. As one of the few people in the country who performs legal abortions later in pregnancy, Dr. Hearn says he's seen his patient load increase 50% from a year ago. One of the things that's, that's critical to understand is that safe abortion is an essential component of women's health care in the 21st century. And that's the way it should be. And no woman's life and health should be at the mercy of the next election or zip code. <laughs> Harper still asks about Oliver James, the name the Dwarax picked out for her would-be brother. I had to tell her that baby was too sick and that baby wasn't going to come home with us and that she, she wasn't going to get to meet her little brother. His ashes, hand and footprints enshrined on the living room shelf. We very much want another child, but what if this happens again? What if I have another high-risk pregnancy that puts my own life at risk? I do want another baby, and now I'm scared to.
I was so excited at the idea of a positive pregnancy test. And now it scares me. It scares me. Because I might not be able to get an abortion this time. Right, we head to Pakistan now, where our correspondent Kaswa Klasra is monitoring the news and events from the wider region. Earlier I spoke to him, uh, and first of all asked about an earthquake which has hit southern Iran on Saturday morning. Well, uh, five people have been killed and scores others uh, have injured in, uh, in, in southern Iran. And let me tell you, according to the officials, it was a 6.1 magnitude of earthquake that has choked. Uh, some remote villages in uh, uh, in southern Iran, and five people have been killed. And uh, it was followed by uh, almost two dozen, you know, the tremors that have spread uh, that has spread, in fact, the waves of uh, uneasiness across uh, the southern Iran. This is what we have heard from the officials in Iran. But uh, let me tell you. The degree of the devastation was not that we have, uh, as you remember, uh, we have heard that in neighboring Afghanistan, 6.1 magnitude of earthquake had killed 1,200 people. So, so the so uh, the degree of devastation was not uh, uh, compared with the Afghanistan, but definitely it has sent unpleasant wave across southern parts of uh, Iran. And moving to Bangladesh, uh, monsoon floods have been occurring there and causing a bit of chaos, haven't they? Um, can you sort of just give us an idea of how many people have been affected by that? Well, unfortunately, three million people have been displaced in neighboring, neighboring Bangladesh, and uh, and all of them have taken refuge in thousands of the official build, buildings there in Afghanistan. Uh, sorry, they're there in Bangladesh. And uh, I, I heard from my sources and also uh, the deputy commissioner of the district, which were which have been inundated by the devastating floods as well. They said that nearly hundred peoples have been killed, and uh, still the flood has been causing, you know, that have, uh, have been causing devastating in Bangladesh as well. So. In in a in in a one liner, above uh, hundred people have been killed, three million have been displaced, and uh, still the flood is causing uh, huge devastation in Bangladesh. Yeah, horrific. Um, hey, look, let's move to the pandemic. Are authorities where you are still well, still counting numbers like we are here in New Zealand? Yes, unfortunately, the same is the condition there in India and Pakistan and other southern, uh, on the South Asian nations as well. I I have heard from my source and the official from neighboring India that 17,000 new cases have been reported and a few dozen uh, numbers of deaths have been uh, reported uh, that were caused by the devastating a sixth wave of COVID-19. But the good thing is the rate of recovery is above 98% in India and uh, also same in the condition in Pakistan as well. So uh, the sixth wave of uh, COVID is on the rampage in both of the South Asian nations. 
I feel like we talk about this nearly every week, but uh, Imran Khan, he's still putting pressure on his successor, Shabazz Sharif. Uh, what's the latest there? Well, exactly. You've rightly pointed out. Imran Khan is not uh, backing down. Rather, he's taking uh, his uh, supporters, millions of his supporters across the big cities and the towns as well. And uh, yesterday, he held a huge rally in, uh, in Islamabad, the capital city of Pakistan, and once again demanded re-election. And he once again accused uh, the United States uh, for conspiring with uh, the Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif to oust him from the power. No, well, we have seen that Imran Khan is not backing down. And he is again and again putting pressure on the government to announce re-election. This is what I can tell you from Pakistan. There they are standing in the air. Big ones, small ones, some Right, to the fresh uh, produce markets now, as we do every Monday. I'm joined by, of course, our minister, the minister of fruit and veggies, Glenn Forsyth, for the lowdown. Morena, Glenn, how are you? Morena, Nick, very well. How are you, sir? Very well. Well, good good for a Monday and good after a good Warriors win yesterday. But um, let's let's uh, stick to the subject. Uh, four, day, four days into July, uh, what are the good folks at uh, Five Plus a Day recommending? Yeah, the first week of July is upon us and Five Plus a Day have a busy month ahead for us on their in-season choices. For fruit, they have chosen navel oranges and tamarillos. And on the vegetable hit list, they nominate brassicas such as broccoli, cauliflower and kale. Now, in a normal year, without a hailstorm ripping through one of our biggest vegetable growing areas in the country, that would have been right on the money. But what did catch our eye, though, on 5 Plus A Day's latest newsletter was a very clever way of encouraging picky eaters to eat veggies. USDA record less than 38% of adolescents consume the right number of fruit and vegetables daily recommended amount for optimal health. And even worse, fewer than 10% of children aged 4 to 8 eat the recommended amount. So the trick? Offering flavoured dip with the cut-up strips of veggies like carrots, cucumbers, celery, green beans, red peppers and yellow courgettes. 31% of the kids said yummy without dip, but it climbed to 64% with the dips. Now, now, so pizza flavoured and ranch being the most popular, the least favourite was herb and garlic. Salsa is another great dip as it's a low calorie one and that also con- contributes to your veggie servings. And also check out healthline.com as well. Look under 15 health dips and spreads for more, like Greek yogurt, honey mustard, a peanut butter one for fruit slices, uh, there's a pumpkin ricotta, and, and of course hummus. Now, the recipes are all there, and they suggest homemade to avoid the extra salt, sugar, and additives in this ready-made uh, ones bought in stores. So, yeah, do try that at home and see if you get any luck with, with the children. Vegetables with pizza-flavoured dip. <laughs> it's probably meat-free, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you mentioned brassicas. Uh, are they sort of the star of the show this month? And what are we talking about when we mention them? Well, brass- brassicas aren't a complete write-off just yet. Broccoli supply this morning wasn't too bad. However, okay. it, may pay to, yeah, it may pay to buy your weekly amount mm. the week before demand on this vegetable climbs towards the weekend. Cauliflower was short, though, and I'm guessing six dollars collies in store this week. But this is where I feel sorry for Wellingtonians this winter. With their backyard ripped apart... Shops there will need to top up from Nelson or Pukekohe, for example. And with freight rates, rates the way they are currently, uh, over Gold Strait and, and uh, all the other end of the island, it's not uncommon for heads or bunches of green vegetables to be a further $1.50 or $2 dearer in the capital. 
Now it, now, it must be rather bulletproof, but kale is doing okay. With cabbage still expensive, kale can be cooked in similar ways to cabbage, and it is necessary to remo- remove the thick stalks before cooking. Uh, if you don't eat all in one night, exchange to paper bags and store in the fridge. You can use kale in smoothies or add shredded leaves to mashed potatoes, stir fries, soups, pasta, or pies. You can even bake for a crisp snack. A very versatile vegetable, to be fair, and one of its best features it is one of the most nutritionally dense vegetables. Parsnips will be nice and sweet now. Supermarket squash are in season, and another brassica rearing to go, Brussels sprouts. Let's stick with kale, because I, I actually don't mind kale, uh, and it's a good filler in like a nice stew or something like that, but not everyone's convinced. Uh, Producer Jeremy just shook his, head at me, <laughs> shook his head at me in disgust. How can we get Jeremy to eat more kale? Well, he could probably sit down with his rabbits, because I bet you they eat it. But, I mean, I agree with you, Nick. You know, you, you just add a little bit into the stews, as you said, and it's magnificent. And, and just think of it, its health benefits as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talked about oranges last week, navel oranges from Australia to be specific. Um, where else can we get our midwinter, uh, I, I guess, sort of vitamin C hit? Yeah, well, looking at fruit this morning, so many apples at the markets, and these are in great supply. A reminder not to leave in your fruit bowl. It may be cold outside, but a warm house spoils their crunchiness within days. Pop them in your fruit crisper drawer in your fridge instead. They're still in your plastic bag with holes. New seven avocados, they're already selling at stores for $2 each or less, so there won't be any millennial house deposit or uh, smashed avocado on toast jokes this year. Green kiwi fruit, they're in good supply, and so are the small sweet bobby bananas. But back to our July hits, tamarillos and oranges. A little birdie tells us the yellow sheds in the North Island are on promotion this week for Australian navels at three forty nine a kilo. They're at their peak, and once you've taken the effort to peel with your hands, the reward of the segments breaking away easily and the orange's orange flavour is totally satisfying. Uh, the tamarillo may be eaten raw, just scooped from the skin or stewed. Somehow the stewing with sugar brings out a truly magical intensity of flavour. Uh, served cool with cream or ice cream, that is a most distinguished dessert. A great long season. We have them until October last, last year. Hey, delicious. Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate it. Hey, let's go across the Tasman. Uh, We were just talking about navel oranges, but this is a little bit more serious. Uh, Sydney has been hit by hard flooding. Uh, Thousands of people have been told to leave their homes. The Weather Service has warned the wider state of New South Wales could be in for flash flooding as heavy rain is forecast to continue. Here's the BBC's Shema Khalil. Another extreme weather event. Only a few months since the last one. In the southwestern Sydney suburb of Camden, home to more than 100,000 people, local shops and a petrol station were inundated. Not much else has been spared here. Many communities have seen a month's worth of rain in the last two days alone. Thousands of residents were ordered to evacuate southwest Sydney, with torrential rain and damaging winds thrashing the east coast. There have been dozens of emergency rescues. Heavy rains have also caused Sydney's main dam to overspill, and the Bureau of Meteorology is warning of more flood risks. We are now facing dangers on multiple fronts. Flash flooding, riverine flooding and coastal erosion. This is a life-threatening emergency situation. The wind and rain have been relentless here in Sydney and the surrounding areas, with more wet weather expected in the next couple of days across New South Wales. This is the start of the school holidays here. Many families were getting ready to travel. But the message from the emergency services is that unless you were ordered to evacuate, people should stay home. 
Experts say the flooding emergency has been worsened by climate change and a La Nina weather phenomenon. Insurance companies in Australia are warning that communities prone to flooding may be forced to relocate, as new figures suggest that floods earlier this year were one of the country's costliest ever natural disasters. Some of the areas currently at risk have just been hit by devastating floods back in March. Scientists have said that unless something is done to reduce carbon emissions and stop global warming, these extreme weather events will become the norm. For now, Australia is once again experiencing firsthand the reality of climate change. It is uh, coming up to 5.32 and you're with uh, First Up on RNZ National. I'm Nick Trubridge. You can text us 2101 about anything you've heard on the show. You can also tweet us at First Up RNZ. Email at first up, uh, email, sorry, first up at rnz.co.nz. You can also check out all of our stories. You can listen to Glenn. Uh, you can catch up with what's happening in the US. Uh, and you can find them on uh, our Facebook page. Uh, and you can also look us up on Instagram at first up rnz. Uh, but we're going to go to the business news. The best things in life are free. And uh, joining us from our business team, as he does, uh, well, this horrific hour in the morning most uh, days, well, most days recently at least, is Nick Poynton. Uh, Morena, Nick, what's the team focusing on? Well, good morning, Nick. Well, first we're going to look to Australia and their video game development industry essentially coming in and cutting our lunch. They're sort of raiding the kitchen kitchen pantry. The geeks are cutting our lunch. You wouldn't think so, but they most definitely are. From the beginning of this month, uh, local video game developers will be eligible for a 40% tax break if they move their operations to Australia. And it's hugely concerning for the industry. They've been talking about this for a wee while because our gaming industry uh, generates nearly $325 million in revenue, employs more than 700 people. We've had a couple of big high-profile sales in the industry Mm. over the past couple of years. And it's one of those industries that's seen as as a scalable one. You know, gaming... It feels like it's becoming more mainstream, but it's only going to become bigger. Uh, people are gaming in different ways these days. And the industry is concerned that, you know, we've already got some big players who are already thinking about moving across because, you know, if you are if you are a gaming company, the past two years have been kind of hard in some respects that you haven't been able to really build up your firm because you're facing skills shortages, things like that. And then if you, by moving yourself over to Australia, not only do you open yourself up to a bigger talent pool, but who's going to turn down a 40% tax, uh, a tax incentive? And we, we, we spoke to a firm, um, we've spoken to a firm, Rocketworks, may not, may not be that much of a household name, but they're already thinking about making that move across the ditch. And it really does raise the question that whether the government was thinking about doing this or not, their, it seems like their hand has already been forced a little bit because it's going to come down to do they want to try and keep this talent, keep these types of businesses here in New Zealand? Um, changing tax slightly, these these sort of business and consumer confidence surveys, which we see a lot of, we're seeing a lot of them at the moment, uh, and, and uh, well, they're not pretty at the moment. No, absolutely not. Uh, how do we make sense of these? Uh, how were they sort of actually conducted? Yeah, so... 
Look, I, I wanted to talk about this because we've had a number of business consumer confidence surveys recently, and yeah. they've all been dire. Absolutely. They make you feel like the world is on the verge of ending. They do. And the reason, look, these are surveys, Westpac, they do a quarterly survey, so every three months, ANZ Bank, they do it in the first, sort of the last week of each month, they do it on a monthly basis. The reason we pay attention, we pay attention to these, is that they are essentially a straw in the wind. They are an indicator of what might happen next, how people are feeling about the economy. The thinking is if people were feeling good, they're probably likely to spend more. If they're feeling bad, they're probably likely to spend less. But but we should really take it take every survey with a grain of salt because we saw this interesting trend over the past couple of years where, you know, throughout the consumer confidence survey, there's a key question there, do you think it's a good time to buy a household item? For months on end, people say, no, it's a terrible time to buy a household item. You know, there's so much uncertainty, we've got closed borders, uh, I've just come off the wage subsidy. Yet, when we got the actual spending activity data from Stats and Z, retail credit card spending, it completely contradicted what people were saying. Right. It's like people were it's it's like people felt guilty, right? They say, oh no, no, it's not a good time to buy a major household item. But then they would go out and do it the following month. So maybe giving giving answers to these surveys that I don't know, uh, are, are, are almost like the trend answer to give or something. Trend or, answer to give, yeah. yeah and, and it's almost shaped by it's probably also shaped by what economic news you hear. If you hear things are bad, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, maybe it's not a good time to buy things. But also, humans are incredibly impulsive. Yep. You know, if they do see a great deal, they're probably going to pull the trigger on it. That's not to say these don't have values. They are, I like to think of them as like a line in the sand. The Reserve Bank does pay attention to these as well when they're making monetary policy decisions. They can they consider a whole, a whole swathe of economic data, but this is one thing they pay to. So whenever you see these, look, I always think it's just... Take it with a pinch of salt. It's just an indicator maybe of how people are feeling, but it needs to be backed up by what the actual spending data says. Absolutely. Hey, uh, thanks, Nicholas. You can hear more business uh, news from our business team on Morning Report about 10 to 7. Uh, right, uh, Barry Guy is here with uh, the sports wrap from the weekend. There was plenty of it, Barry. Uh, let's start with the All Blacks. Let's start specifically, we know the result, but let's start with Scott Barrett. Uh, he could be in trouble again, and not for the first time. Uh, yeah, that's right, for a, uh, a clean-out. Um, I've sort of been doing some, just a little bit of look, looking around. I can't see any action has been taken as yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, some of his uh, tackling technique has been uh, put into question over um, recent times. Um, there's always a bit of uh, consideration there of, uh, you know, players uh, lowering their bodies and those sorts of things as well and a swinging mm. arm getting in contact with the parts yeah. of uh, the opposition that you're not meant to. So um, we'll just have to wait and see there. Um, I'm not uh, committed as to say whether it was... Um, uh, illegal or something should happen after that, but uh, we'll let the judiciary uh, decide that. But Do other than thing, that, yeah. he was uh, he was outstanding in what he did. All that uh, running in the it, midfield and was, um, yeah. yeah, the tackles and it is exactly what. Um, uh, Ian Foster would have wanted him uh, to do as the number six. So, I was going to uh, say, yeah, fantastic. And, yeah, arguably, well, some would say uh, an epic performance despite being out of position, you know, some people think he's a natural lock. But um, the performance generally, what did you make of this? I mean, I, I sort of watched and I, I was, I've got to say, pleasantly surprised with how well oiled they look. They had a couple mm. of moments, but they were playing an Irish team that I think people forget have been together all through the Six Nations already. 
Yeah, um, they'd had a, obviously a bit of break because yeah. the Six Nations, Six Nations finished a few few months ago, and they've been playing uh, club rugby. Um, I suppose uh, there were. I wouldn't have thought that uh, the midfield was the 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 team that the All Blacks were going to have until they had those uh, COVID yeah, cases. So there was a, a change there, but again, they they played well. Um, but uh, as Ian Foster said, a lot of the senior players uh, took up. Um, the responsibility last week at training and they showed that in um, the performance on the field as well and just uh, there is that uh, ruthlessness that you get you know that they show quite often the All Blacks that um, given an opportunity and a pace and and they will sting you um, and they managed to do that a couple of times especially those tries yeah. they scored just before half time so uh, yeah I was um, you know people I spoke to beforehand said you know they could lose it they expect it all to be close so um, you know a, a, a great performance but now it just all throws up the question of what's going to happen in test number two I yeah, yeah, indeed. As an indeed. Again, I, I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. So, um, you know, it, it sets the series up nicely, though. Just quickly, uh, the Wars yesterday, I was there. It was just a magic occasion. Uh, Great. The five pitch invaders aside, it kind of got a bit boring after three had run onto the field. But what well, they've been saving them up, haven't they? So, well, that's, that, that's uh, right. Thousand Sweet, days. That's right. But bottled up excitement. Uh, what did you make of this? Yeah, well, um, there has been some talk that perhaps the Warriors weren't going to win another game this season and uh, just goes to show that perhaps being at home and uh, having the hype uh, surround there and the uh, support that they got just go, uh, perhaps means that they can win another couple of games. Uh, they won't make the playoffs, but if they can win a few more games and just get away from that wooden spoon area, uh, fantastic. And it will set up them nicely as to who takes over as coach next year. That's, that's going to be uh, an yeah. interesting one, but well done to Stacey Jones. Uh, also, I just quickly want to mention that uh, uh, Nick Kyrgios, he's a bully apparently. Um, oh, yeah. uh, I would say that Nick Kyrgios is the greatest thing that's happened to tennis in I the last could, couple of years. I could not agree more. And, um, you know... Um, you know, you can't make any noise when they're serving, which is just rubbish, in yep. my yep. Uh, opinion. And Nick Kyrgios, he's a, he's a man. He supports um, all sorts of uh, causes and human rights and those sorts of things. And so he plays tough on the uh, on the court. And, uh, and he's good, good luck to him. I'd like to see him go another couple of rounds. He's in. himself, yeah. Um, yep. Hey, thanks, uh, Barry. Go the wires. Next year will be our year. The professionals of Morning Report are with us after six and for a quick preview of our flagship news programme, it's Susie Ferguson. Morning up. Oh, kia ora, how are you? What's on the agenda? I'm well, I'm well. Sorry, that good, first... Good, Well, we're going, to be, we're going to be talking, of course, about the Prime Minister off the back of that trip to Europe. She's off to Australia on her way home there for most of the week, I think. Uh, of course, talking amongst other things, trade... Uh, and possibly also talking about uh, whether there's going to be any update on the situation with New Zealand 501s. We will speak to Senior Minister Megan Woods this morning on the programme. Also questions being raised about the use of prison labour to extend Waikiria prison. Uh, And actually pinging back over to Australia, um, one person dying, tens of thousands of people evacuating in Sydney. Uh, because of your yet more flooding. It seems like there's a constant stream of flooding going on uh, in that part of the world. Pretty bad weather. We will hear more about that and, of course, uh, also be talking to Kerry ann Walsh about that on the programme. And it's all coming up after six. Hey, thanks, Susie. Uh, don't miss it, everyone. Essential listening, plenty on the menu this morning. Uh, right, now... 
to the story of the day. Uh, you've heard of the All Blacks. You've heard of the All Whites. You've Well, I assume you've heard of the Black Caps. You've probably heard of the White Ferns as well. But you may not have heard of the Sharp Blacks. The team are made up of New Zealand's best butchers who have chopped, sliced and diced their way to the World Butchers Challenge in Sacramento next month, September 3rd to be exact. Uh, a warning to vegetarians out there on this one. Meat features pretty prominently in our Leonard Powell story. It's going to be broadcasted live throughout the world. It's the Olympics of um, butchery. Reuben Sharples knows his meat. The Auckland-based butcher says he struggled at school, but when he began an apprenticeship up north in Waipu a couple of decades ago, he realised he'd found his calling. Since then, he's done stints in London and started up his own popular business. Now, the aptly named Sharples is a member of the Sharp Blacks team, which will be competing in the World Butchers Challenge in the US this September. We'll sort of rock up there and <clears throat> the, we'll, there'll be 15 countries that we're going to compete against and we'll have a side of beef, a side of pork, a whole lamb and five chickens. Now the thing with American meat compared to our meat is that our sort of pigs, a side of pork would be about 35 kilos, we're expecting 45 to 50 and the beef also is going to be probably around 80 kilos bigger than what we expect. And even the, even the sheep are bigger. Everything's bigger and apparently better in America. If you think the Sharp Blacks are heading to Sacramento for a holiday, think again. We're not just there to cut up just rump steak. We've got to find different things, and, but it's all got to be cookable. So we can't sort of produce something that's unusable. It's all got to be usable, and it's, it's, just, um, it's just so next level. Like you're competing against like the French that are into all this charcuterie stuff, and they'll be putting their sort of spin on things, and then we're sort of got our spin of sort of you know, number eight sort of wire sort of style. The team is made up of seven butchers, including Pukekoe's James Smith, Kaitaia's Luca Young, Glenn Innes's Sharice Redden, Mangafai's Dan Klink, and Ricky Kirikire and Corey White from Ōtahuhu. The squad works together to fillet, mince or make sausages from high-end cuts of meat, as Sharples explains. You've got Ricky, um, who's the captain, and he's a product development, and so a lot of the products will be going across his sort of table to make sure. But right at the start, um, it's myself and Dan Klink who will be doing the boning and breaking, and we sort of got to prepare everything to give it to the product developers. And then you've got Luca and Sharice and Corey, who are sort of doing the products. And Sharice is uh, mainly on the chicken to start with, and then she gets onto the display. And she's got a real eye for detail, and she'll sort of she'll be putting everything, placing it, making sure the tickets all sort of straight and and everything. The biggest thing is that you use all the product. So in, in three hours and fifteen, when they yell out knives down, we've got to make sure everything's done. If you've got five kilos of leftover mince trim or some kind of trim, you're going to get heavily penalised for that. Lauren Shammy from Beef and Lamb New Zealand is a spokesperson for the event. She says the competition began thanks to a classic interaction. The WBC, World Butch Challenge, wasn't always the global arena spectacular it is today. Um, it actually started very humbly with two butchers and a bottle of whiskey. Essentially, our chairman, Rod Slater, who is an ex-butcher, he was having a drink with an Aussie colleague, and as the old trans-Tasman rivalry goes, they were doing a bit of 
Aussies better than Kiwis, Kiwis better than Aussies. And um, they decided to create a team each and go head to head. So the Trans-Tasman Challenge was born um, and that happened in Christchurch. Then the UK wanted a piece of the action and so in 2013 it became a Tri-Nations competition. And then it's just throughout the years progressed and everyone wants peace. The whole world essentially has jumped in and now we have 14 teams coming to the Golden One Centre in September. This year's event also includes teams from America, Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, France, Germany, Great Britain, Iceland, Italy, Ireland, Portugal, Wales and of course Australia. Sharples, who owns the Aussie Butcher in New Lynn, found himself in the headlines last year when he volunteered at his local supermarket while unable to open his business due to COVID restrictions. We weren't able to open on level um, four, so uh, I've got a good guy, Jamie Bear, down in my local um, Green Bay, New World. So I went down there and um, and sort of helped him out because he was short-staffed. And that, and that's the whole thing about our butchers. Like we're just we're sort of humble and we sort of want to help one another. Like I didn't want to see someone struggling, and it was my community that was they needed to get meat from somewhere. I mean, he must be a good guy because my son's just quit working for me and going to work for him. So. <laughs> Sharples says the Sharp Blacks have some secrets they'll be employing at the WBC, but like to let their butchering do the talking. We've definitely got a few things up our sleeves um, that was sort of was sort of top secret that we'll have out there. But me personally, I just like I just like to keep it sort of just true and sort of traditional. And that's sort of what the sort of Kiwi palate is. Uh, Leonard Powell reporting there. Now, if you're um, keen to watch the World Butchers Championships, it'll be streamed online from the Golden One Centre in Sacramento on the 3rd of September. Uh, changing back, uh, changing tack rather, completely now. Uh, today marks the start of Sarcoma Awareness Month, which is a bid to draw attention to what's known as the forgotten cancer. Uh, joining me now is orthopaedic surgeon and oncologist Andrew Johnson. Uh, Morena, Andrew. Good morning, good morning. Let, let's start with, uh, I guess, prevalence of the disease. Talk to us about the prevalence of sarcoma in New Zealand. Well, as you've said, it's, um, it's recognised as a rare cancer, and it's only about 1% of all cancers diagnosed, although it does make up 10% of young people's cancers and 20% of cancers in children. We think we treat about 200 new cases of sarcoma in New Zealand each year. Talk to us about, uh, I, I guess, challenges when it comes to uh, diagnosis, first of all, but also challenges in treatment, because there are a few, aren't there? Yeah, there are a few. I mean, I guess the challenges of diagnosis is that cancer spans all age groups, from the very young to the very old, and, and it changes its nature through those uh, years, from the very young getting bone cancers, primarily to the, very, to the older patients getting soft tissue cancers. And its rarity means that general practitioners and family doctors may only see one sarcoma in their entire working career. So that makes diagnosis very difficult or a cancer that you're not really uh, on the front of your mind and patients haven't heard of. So they're not aware of the things to look uh, look out for. When it comes to uh, research and clinical trials, uh, well, research first of all, is there much out there? uh, Talk to us about importance of it. Well, the importance of it is, 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 is paramount, and there is a lot going on internationally in Europe and North America. We're involved in a couple of trials here in New Zealand, mainly in the children's group, although we've got um, recently access to this next, genomic, uh, next generation genomic sequencing, and there are a few more trials uh, about to come live at the tail end of the year. But 
getting access to big trials from here is difficult and um, it is critical uh, to try and get a hold of this disease because the outcomes overall are not fantastic. Forgotten cancer uh, was, well, how we described it in our intro there uh, and and how, you know, some professionals do describe it. Um, why do you think that is? Why why don't we hear about it as, as often as perhaps other cancers? Well, I mean, it's a good, good question. I think it's rarity is the major issue, although one would think with the, it being 20% of all childhood cancers, it would be more commonly known. Mm. Um, but I guess it's it's not taught that uh, well in medical school. We don't hear about it. We don't know many people who've had sarcoma, whereas things like breast cancer, lung cancer are so much more common that uh, everyone may have been touched by those diseases. And I think that's part of the challenge of uh, sarcoma treatment is that patients often present a bit later than they would do with other forms of cancer. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, an important discussion, uh, surgeon and oncologist Andrew Johnson there. Right, we've got the good Dr Michael Baker uh, standing by eventually, but let's get to a little bit of feedback first. Uh, We wanted to know about the most American thing ever. First answer, most American thing, coffee and donuts. Well, yeah, obvious obvious one there. Uh, Most American thing ever is the last letter of the alphabet being Z. Yeah, I don't know that anywhere else does that. Anyway, um, hey, look, we've got an apology uh, to Gordon and Wanaka. Because Ryan Fox, uh, sort of all blacks related, of course, Grant's father, uh, has finished runner-up at the Irish Golf Open. Uh, no, we didn't mention it, Gordon. Apologies for that. It's a big sporting agenda, but uh, an incredible effort, as you say, uh, no doubt. And one more piece here, uh, going back to sport. The big question for the All Blacks, uh, well, yeah, next week is is whether Jonathan Sexton will play. According to the rules, he shouldn't play. Uh, he's really the ace card for the Irish, so if they can have him uh, in there, it'll certainly be a tougher test for the All Blacks. Uh, right, back to COVID-19. Uh, the steadily rising numbers in recent days are causing concern, uh, with some modelling suggesting we could start seeing upwards of 20,000 cases a day soon. So joining me now is University of Otago epidemiologist Professor Michael Baker. Morena, Professor. Morena, Nick. Uh, look, this is University of Auckland modelling, isn't it, suggesting upwards of 20,000. How how likely is that scenario? Look, I think it's quite plausible. Uh, it's always unpredictable because um, the wild card is the virus because it's changing and we are now getting these new subvariants of Omicron, BA45, and another one that are taking over. And there are about 50% of those cases arriving into New Zealand are these new variants. There are about 25% of those cases detected in New Zealand. These are more transmissible because they escape the immunity we've already got. So it's it's difficult to predict exactly what they'll do, but we can be pretty sure the numbers are going to go up and it may be quite sustained. In terms of the levels, uh, obviously at orange still, People, you know, probably don't want to go back to red, ideally. I mean, I can't speak for yourself, but I think, you know, most people I know are sort of, uh, you know, potentially for the idea from a health perspective, but against it in other ways. What do you think we need to do here? Do we need to look at going back to red? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that's necessary at the moment. I mean, the the big problem is 
We've also got a lot of influenza, of course, and mm. the hospitals are really under a huge strain. Uh, so that may force the government's hand to take stronger measures. But actually, there's lots of things that all New Zealanders can do. And as well as getting vaccinated and boosted, and uh, the two other things that we know work is that stay home if you've got a respiratory illness. Um, it's required if you've got COVID-19, but you may not know what it is initially with your symptoms. But that self-isolation really works in slowing these viruses down. And the other thing, of course, is that we've heard over and over again, masks really do work. And so if you're indoors with other people, um, then you've got to wear the masks. And unfortunately, people are not doing that. And also, even though we're making, the government's making masks available for schools, which is great, we really need to mandate masks in schools because there's a lot of transmission happening there. And the great thing about isolation and masks is they work on all COVID variants. They work on influenza, RSV, and all the other respiratory viruses. So they're the big two things we really should be doing. Absolutely. Uh, just very briefly, we've got about 15 seconds. Reinfection rate, uh, still t- what, what, what sort of timeline are we looking at there? Well, you can get reinfected within three weeks. Right. And um, this is getting very common. And it will get to a point where that's the norm, that you're being reinfected. And unfortunately, every time you get this virus, you face all the same problems. Yep, absolutely. Hey, uh, thanks, Dr. Baker, Professor Michael Baker there from the University of Otago. Uh, Just before we go to Morning Report, another bit of uh, American feedback related to July 4th. I'm an American living in NZ, grew up in Iowa. Our family celebrated with a backyard cookout. Hamburgers, hot dogs, potato salad, homemade apple pie, Watch the fireworks display once it was dark. Uh, Sounds absolutely delightful, doesn't it? Uh, I could get around a hamburger, maybe a margarita like Anna said as well. Uh, Look, that's it from us. The good folk at Morning Report are up next. Uh, Nathan is back tomorrow. Do have a great day.